Spoken biotech and medtech interviews with Encode Ideas. My name is Hogan Mullally. I'm a partner with Encode. We thought for our final podcast of 2021, we would interview another portfolio manager, but this time a dedicated life science portfolio manager, a friend of Encode Ideas, and someone I personally have known for over 10 years, Gil Aheron of Rosalind Advisors. Gil is a founding partner and portfolio manager at Rosalind, a dedicated life science hedge fund based in Toronto. Gil was good enough to agree to join us to talk about a couple of things that I think are highly relevant at this particular juncture, both from a macro perspective in the biotech world and also from more of a micro perspective as it relates to one particular company that we have a mutual interest in. From a macro perspective, as a dedicated life science hedge fund, Rosalind is feeling a lot of the same pain that we as life science investors are feeling. A very, very difficult biotech tape, a catastrophically bad XBI over the last number of months. And I thought it would be valuable to have Gil come on and give us his perspective on the current biotech landscape, perhaps put it in some historical context and also talk about what he sees as potentially playing out for 2022. From a more micro perspective, Rosalind is the largest shareholder of Delcath Systems, and Gil is on the board of Delcath Systems along with his partner, Stephen Salomon. So given that Delcath has been topical of late with their recent release of additional focus data, we thought it would be timely to also have the conversation with him about the dynamics of the Delcath data and also give him opportunity to perhaps talk about other names that he likes. And he's come forward with an interesting name called Verona Pharma. So we're gonna talk about that as well. From a disclosure perspective, as we've disclosed in our previous interview with Gerard Michel, the CEO of Delcath, we have had some compensation from Delcath. Back in the early part of 2020, we launched research on Delcath and were compensated for it. We've received no compensation from Delcath since and have no anticipation of additional compensation from Delcath. We do own equity in Delcath. Lastly, I would highlight that these interviews, these podcasts are for entertainment purposes only. Please do not consider anything said in these interviews as investment advice. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment in any of the securities that are discussed in this podcast. And now, let's transition to my interview with Gil Aheron. I'd like to welcome Gil Aheron of Rosalind Advisors to the podcast. Gil, thanks for agreeing to join me today. Pleasure. And always nice to talk to you, Hogan. So tell us a little bit about Rosalind and and perhaps as part of that, if you have any disclosure or disclaimer you want to make, you can uh, also put that uh, as part of your sort of introduction. Yeah, no, appreciate that. Rosalind is a hedge fund operating out of Toronto, Canada. And as part of the disclaimers that are required in the context of these sorts of discussions, uh, I will emphasize that uh, Rosalind Advisors is an Ontario Securities Commission registered firm. And we do offer uh, prospectus exempt funds on a private placement basis to accredited investors under applicable securities laws in various Canadian jurisdictions. And uh, the discussions that we are going to have today, we we will mention a, a couple of stocks that actually are within the Rosalind portfolios. And these discussions are not intended to render investment advice. So let's get that out of, out of the way and let's proceed, Hogan. Right now, we're dealing with, I think, pretty remarkable times when it comes to the biotech market. And I think you've got some interesting perspective because Rosalind, as a fund, you as an investor have been doing this for you know a long time. So tell us a bit about Rosalind and how you see the current biotech market. And you know, do we have reason to be optimistic for 2022? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I've been at it for a while now. Uh, Rosalind Cell started in 2006 by myself and my business partner, Stephen Salomon. All I know is biotech. I have a life sciences uh, background originally. 
Um, and all I know to invest in is the biotech sector. Stephen kind of came from a much broader um, sector focus, and he saw something very unique here in, in, in biotechs. Uh, they're driven mostly by non-financial information, and they have incredible amount of what we call idiosyncratic risks that somewhat uncorrelated to the rest of the market. Hence, a sector that's viewed as high risk uh, with high volatility and the opportunity for uh, players in, in this field and for investors to really, to really be uh, stock pickers and to try to generate what we call in the hedge fund world alpha, uncorrelated returns. And he articulated to me, I think, what was uh, a very uh, disciplined strategy in what some, sometimes appears to be um, a very complex sector as to how we should uh, go about uh, investing and trading here. And pretty much it was a hypothesis that was put out by my business partner, Stephen. And uh, over the last 14 years or so, that's what we've been executing upon. Uh, we're very much focused on development stage companies, mostly late stage companies. And what we ultimately look to do is to try to identify the opportunities that we can have high conviction around clinical or regulatory outcomes. And uh, that has been our story over these years. Um, we've, we've generated uh, nice, consistent, abnormal returns. Uh, it doesn't mean that we didn't break eggs uh, in the process. Uh, we had a couple of down years uh, historically during that time. One actually almost brought us to our knees, and that was back in 2011. Uh, but uh, overall, it's been just an incredible uh, journey and, uh, and an intellectually stimulating one. And so how do you, how do you view the current biotech climate? Right. Clearly it's been a challenging year. You talk about 2011 as a year that almost brought you to your knees. 2021 has brought some notable life science dedicated hedge funds to their knees. So, you know, how is 2021, how has it been from your perspective? How is it different maybe than previous years? And is there a reason for optimism still in the biotech space? So I will start by saying there's always reason for optimism, and that's something that's important to kind of contextualize. Um, I, I, I've seen in my years of dealing in capital markets, uh, I've already seen quite a number of cycles that have come and gone. But let me kind of talk a little bit about the biotech sector over the last few decades and what it has evolved into, both from a sector and a capital market standpoint and what this here uh, signifies and, and the historic nature of it. Biotech, I guess the industry overall, one would argue started in the 1970s and you start to have companies IPO uh, in the 80s and the 90s. And in many ways it was to sort of um, a bit of a risk on risk off. It was an incredibly cyclical sector to invest in. What we've seen, I would say over the last almost 20 years, starting like probably around after the dot com bust, We've seen not just an explosion of innovation within the sector, we've seen an innovation on the capital market side. We've seen more and more sophisticated investors, more and more dedicated investors, and, and at the same time, on par, more and more sophisticated companies that have been able to actually turn success to something more generic while before failure was uh, endemic and generic within the sector. So the level of sophistication has risen substantially, uh, both on the innovation and drug development side, and on the other hand, on the investor side. And as we have seen more and more successes within the sector, we've seen more and more capital flows and less and less cyclicality around the sector of a risk on, risk off, and more of a steady state stream of capital allocation. What we have seen probably starting in 2020, and I think we had almost a sort of a capitulative upside move in, in the beginning of 2021, is this explosion of capital and uh, companies, both in the private and public markets, uh, to a historic level. Uh, one might call it a bubble, um, although uh, 
it might be that the supply demand has kind of accelerated, accelerated to an extent that it might have been unsustainable in, in some ways. But 2021 has been historic in many ways because what we have seen is peak to trough decline within, and, and I will use the XBI, which is one of the biotech indices, uh, declined since February till now of, at one point it was near 38%. But along with a complete uncoupling from the rest of the market, the S&P, or even uh, the Russell, which is a small cap index, what we've seen this year is highly, highly unusual. And what we see as well is a complete detachment between the public market and the private market within biotech. So in many ways, this is an incredibly historic year because um, drawdowns within the sector did usually correlate over the last decade or so with the rest of the market and the rest of the indices. This is an incredibly unique year in that context. So you highlight that there's always reason for optimism. Uh, so maybe the last question I'll ask you with regards to the broader biotech space before we jump into a few specific companies, what, in looking at your crystal ball for 2022, what do you think 2022 will, will how it, will it play out for the biotech space in your opinion? Right. So, you know, Every year we kind of internally at our firm, what we do is we try to think of, well, we're, we're stock pickers. So we try to kind of obviously uh, construct the best risk reward portfolio that uh, we believe we can. On the other hand, we, we do try to think about the macro issues and to think about biotech specifically and markets overall and where risks might lie. Walking into 2021, there were a number of risks well articulated out there. The number one was probably drug pricing. We had uh, a change in administration in the U.S. in late, well, early this year. Um, we did have a piece of legislation on the table that was uh, put together by Democrats uh, back in 2020. It, it, it was called HR3, that frankly uh, voted upon and agreed upon within uh, the Democratic Party that probably would have spelled uh, disaster to this industry and this sector. What we And this was a, a point of risk that uh, gave me some sleepless nights, and we did an incredible amount of due diligence on that front to reach to Washington insiders, et cetera, to try to understand how will things play out there, because it was not inconsequential, and it presented a real uh, macro risk for this sector overall. And I believe other investors uh, perceived it as such. So that was number one. Number two, we, we looked at valuations and capital flows, and we did have sort of uh, a, and a, an incredible rise of biotech um, in the late stages of the year and ultimately to the beginning of the year too. So valuations became an issue or the speed or the velocity and the accelerated amount of capital allocation to the sector. So that was a cause of concern. Other causes of concerns that have been put out there by investors were FDA issues that relate to regulatory risks, et cetera, that uh, we might have a bar that has gone higher. Oh, and, and of course, fourthly, just to kind of uh, central banks, the Fed, we are in the midst of uh, a rolling pandemic. And we have unprecedented action by central banks, too. Uh, and rolling back of some of these uh, can always have an impact on risk assets. So if you kind of try to tick the boxes, I would say that uh, we gained comfort early in the year that whatever legislative issues will come about out of Washington uh, will not be close to what the original HR3 put out there. And there might be some modest tweaking around uh, drug pricing issues. I mean, the main issues around drug pricing relate to uh, Medicare's ability to negotiate prices vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis pharma and, and biotech, the ability to import drugs from Canada, and ultimately uh, reference pricing globally. Uh, we don't see any of that coming together. And frankly, while there has been last-minute uh, discussions, in the context of what is called a reconciliation bill in the U.S., uh, uh, potentially affecting that, uh, there is a decent probability that nothing will be achieved. And if anything will be achieved, it will not genuinely affect the net present value of most companies out there. So 
put that aside, and obviously that's a cause for optimism because risk number one is off. The second risk that I kind of highlighted was uh, valuations. And indeed, if you look early in the year, the biotech index peaked in February and had a very steep decline to levels that are not that far from where we are now by March. So uh, that kind of, the unwinding was very fast and uh, in many ways kind of gave us some comfort as well uh, that valuations are reasonable. Well, as it turns out, you kind of had what is a classic bear market and the extent of it and length of it is much, much longer than what has been seen historically within the sector. And needless to say that, you know, we did not see that kind of a recovery to the prior levels. What we've seen is this continuous delevering within the sector rolling throughout the year. Um, and, and I would say accelerating, especially over the last couple of months. So that has yet to resolve itself. And I will get back to that. But going to the regulatory aspect, uh, talking about FDA as an example, we have seen mid-year an approval by the FDA of uh, what is an incredibly controversial Alzheimer's drug, uh, and this is the most notable one, uh, by Biogen. So I-, I would say that the idea that the FDA somehow has become more stringent uh, vis-a-vis drug companies, uh, that negated, and that's the, most, the highest profile uh, observation, uh, that kind of data point negated that uh, potential risk. And I would say, generally speaking, vis-a-vis FDA, it is on a case-by-case basis, but we have seen tremendous amount of flexibility, especially when it comes to areas of high on med need and orphan, uh, orphan indication. So I, I don't think there's a, a, a broad uh, risk uh, that's unique uh, at this point in time. And, and as it pertains to uh, central banks, et cetera, we, we are talking now about tapering. And ultimately, we there is that risk ultimately for risk off assets that small caps might be hit by that. Uh, but one might argue that uh, the biotech sector already uh, discounted more, uh, much of these risks. Despite all the, these uh, observations and facts that have been visible to the market, what we do see you know, biotech weakness persisting. And, and frankly, uh, the obvious risk uh, I might have not articulated, which is COVID. COVID had a genuine impact on companies, um, clinical development, commercial, et cetera, and maybe more acutely so compared to many other sectors as well. It had had a genuine operational impact on companies. And the fact that we had a very fast vaccination uh, strategy and then a resurgence of Delta and maybe now another variant that might come about. That is a genuine uh, fundamental operational risk and issue for these companies and could be an overhang that is yet to be resolved. So I'm kind of throwing all these particular uh, issues on the table, but now where's the cause for optimism? Number one, um, you need to look at valuations in this sector. Biotech is a non-financial sector often in the development stage of it. It's almost narrative kind of driven uh, sector and very few players might have uh, rigorous uh, models to understand the net present value of the various assets within these companies. And in times of distress, uh, you don't have a counterparty potentially to agree with you on valuations. And what we see right now in the landscape is uh, not, not that it has not happened, but it's unusual in the context of its uh, uncoupling from the rest of the market we see a significant number, as of last count, I believe around 20% or so of companies within the sector trade at cash or below net cash. The majority of companies traded at 52-week lows and some of them at historic lows. And uh, the declines have been steep and fast uh, and, and, and accelerating actually over the last a little while, potentially into tax loss selling in December as well. We have seen on top of that, all of the I would call them the bellwether uh, biotech or healthcare-focused hedge funds uh, suffering. We, we, there was a Wall Street Journal piece just on the weekend highlighting it, how the majority of, of biotech hedge funds out there are down 30, well over 30% year to date. Some have shut down, actually. And I presume that there are mounting redemptions and, uh, and uh, delivering uh, amongst investors from these funds especially into year end. So what we are seeing is 
carnage within this sector. And while it is very difficult ultimately to kind of really point to bottoms in markets or in sectors, but based on the distress valuations that we see out there, the risk reward for the sector is probably the best that it has been over the last uh, five to six years. Last time that we've seen something comparable to that was in early 2016, although at that time it did correlate with the rest of the markets. But no doubt that if you look at, at stock by stock and the stats around the sector, while many of the risks that were perceived are off the table, uh, in essence, what we are seeing is the most incredible risk reward and most likely because of the length of this delivering in the sector and the decline, what usually follows is a healthy recovery, but a sustained recovery that would last, which would be actually uh, built on uh, solid foundations and allow the, uh, and probably be lengthier in time as well. So I think we're, we're going through an interesting cycle, but um, I've never been more enthusiastic about the opportunities that I see at this point in time. And I think many should take a deep breath and reflect and kind of take selective advantage of opportunities that are coming about. I think that's a nice sort of macro framing as we now transition to a few specific names. And let's start with Verona Pharma, a name that, you know, I think checks a lot of the boxes you just talked about, which is late stage, you know, impending phase three data, but in a really, what I would perceive challenging indication with COPD. So uh, what do you like about uh, Verona in this, what has historically been considered a pretty difficult indication? Right. So I would say generally, again, it is it is a sector for stock picking, uh, more so uh, potentially than others. And when dealing with these sorts of distressed times, um, one tries to have a, a rational framework of what to choose and what to hold. And I would say the framework that we uh, use, um, which I think is, is an important one in, in the sector is, we try to identify what we see as late stage assets, meaning with proximity to cash flows more so than others, rather than perpetual science projects. And ideally with relatively imminent value inflection points in the context of their data, or phase three data, or ultimately regulatory approval. And ideally, a robust balance sheet as well that can take them uh, through those value inflection points and, and, and even more so beyond. And so in that context, you know, we, we scan the landscape on an ongoing basis. We have opportunities that are sitting on our shelves. And we try to uh, ultimately, when these sorts of times come about, to take advantage of, of, of the carnage and the distress selling. Verona Pharma is... is I think ticks a lot of these boxes in a relatively clean way. Uh, number one, as you mentioned, the end market opportunity that they're pursuing is, is, is a sizable one. It's, it's COPD. COPD actually has been a very challenging indication to pursue, but we believe that uh, Verona actually does have a drug that has demonstrated itself and validated itself in extensive clinical development program. So this is, number one, a very large market opportunity here. Uh, secondly, they actually have a robust balance sheet. The company was uh, completely recapitalized uh, last year in 2020 by what would be uh, a notable shareholder base, uh, you know, the, the classic kind of um, uh, blue chip um, biotech hedge funds out there, uh, raising over $200 million to actually execute on their phase three studies. So, and, and that transaction actually happened in the proximity of where the stock is trading right now. As of, as of a couple of days ago, it was actually trading at a significant discount. So it enabled investors the opportunity to kind of walk into the story at the same level or even below where recently it was. And, and lastly, the, the data points are actually relatively imminent. They're around the, uh, the corner. Uh, they will report their first phase three uh, in the first half of next year, uh, probably in proximity to mid next year, and their second phase three in the second half as well. And subsequent to that, they will look to file in, in 2023 with the FDA. 
So w- what is so special about the story? Frankly, what is special is the fact that there's incredible amount of validating data for the drug. They're developing a, a drug that's called uh, ensinfentrin. It's a nebulized form of a what are called PD3, PD4s, uh, dual inhibitors. Now, this is a class that many companies have tried to pursue. Uh, we've seen uh, consistent failures in this area in early stage studies by uh, Novartis, by Merck, by Takeda. Um, most of these drugs uh, had short duration of action and, and ultimately low efficacy. And Verona, notably, has uh, extensive amount of data and over 1,300 patients validating their particular uh, drug and it's uh, in a bit dosing twice daily. So what you're dealing with here is a drug that's been developed over many years. Uh, we've seen data in, in multiple respiratory indications, including asthma, uh, cystic fibrosis, and ultimately two sizable uh, phase 2B studies in COPD. The financing that the company had, these are large projects. So the ability of them, and I'd say the value inflection point for them, frankly, was when they got, uh, were able to raise $200 million to execute on these phase three programs and ultimately uh, take them well into uh, 2023 in that context. So gave them a tremendous amount of, of uh, runway. What I would say at this point in time then, what you, one really wants to do is to look at their prior phase two studies and how they compare to the ongoing phase threes. So just to kind of highlight where COPD is, despite the fact you haven't had a new drug with a new mechanism of action uh, within that space probably for about 40 years or so, despite the fact that there are uh, therapeutic alternatives, and it is currently in the U.S., it's around a $10 billion market of, of prescription drugs. You have around 6 million COPD patients out there. And uh, over a million of those that uh, still have symptomatic issues despite optimal therapy. So the unmet need is extensive. And one would argue that, and, and KOLs do articulate, the need for a new mechanism of action to try to help those particular patients. So again, going back, looking at their historical phase 2B data, which is what we have done, the the patient population that they use in those two separate phase 2B uh, studies is consistent with the patient population they will have in their phase 3, uh, and then they are having their phase 3 trial. Uh, this is, number one, uh, incredibly important. The main difference is the phase 2Bs were actually four-week in duration, and the efficacy time point for the phase 3 is 12 weeks. So there is a change between the two although we don't suspect and don't expect to see uh, that uh, adversely affect outcome. And if anything, it might actually improve it over time. So this is kind of on the main primary endpoint, one can gain tremendous amount of comfort around the high probability of success there. In fact, the studies as well are well-powered and relatively conservative compared to what they've observed in their phase 2Bs where ultimately the, the outcome measures were high. I would say, and, and again, everything comes down to valuation in many ways. The probability of success in these studies is very high and the valuation now is incredibly attractive. We're talking about a company that has about $160 million on its balance sheet as of last quarter and it's about a 270 million market cap. So risk reward extraordinary for what is a blockbuster indication, what is, a, that looks to be a relatively low risk data point. I would just highlight two risks in relation to the story, but it's more risk that contingent on valuation at, at a certain point in time. The main secondary endpoints have to do with quality of life. They're not necessarily um, important from a registration standpoint or from an approvability standpoint, but they do they can have a commercial significance. While I feel comfortable pounding the table on the primary efficacy endpoint, those endpoints are more challenging for one to pound the table. If they were to succeed, and there are reasons to believe that they could, uh, partly based on their phase two data, uh, although when we analyzed it, uh, our, our conviction was not necessarily as high. But if they were to succeed, the commercial uh, impact would be extraordinary here and, and what could feel uh, and the upside even more substantial, arguably, uh, as one uh, looks and perceives that drug. Uh, if they were to fail, uh, one might, uh, or, or not to fail or, or fail to show statistical significance, it would 
it still would not hinder the approvability and ultimately the commercial potential of the drug, uh, but maybe one would more conservative, have more conservative assumptions around uh, the revenue opportunity of a drug that ultimately could be a blockbuster indication. So uh, where, where the stock is, where the valuation is, the risk reward is extraordinary at this point in time, irrelevant of uh, what, one, uh, what the outcome might be on these secondary endpoints, but I'm just highlighting if the stock performs well, uh, one should be cognizant of that. So let's assume that it hits on FEV1, but doesn't hit on any quality of life uh, endpoints. Where do you see it fitting into the uh, current treatment regime, you know, which has you know, a number of, like you, you mentioned, number of incumbent technologies out there, with, uh, but no novel mechanisms for the last few decades? Right. So again, what, what is unique about this particular uh, mechanism of action is its dual nature actually is additive and synergistic in many ways, providing um, multiple, bo- addressing both bronchodilation as well as the anti-inflammatory aspects that are required in often dealing with the disease where multiple drug therapies come into play. So where you really see it fits is probably in the context of the study population that they have in their phase three trial. So what you see it, their phase three trial population ultimately has, will have patients that are either on what are called LABAs or LAMAs, which are, have been out there for a while. So it is a, an add-on therapy on top of uh, existing monotherapy at this point in time. So this is one area where you can see it fit. It will have, by the way, monotherapy component to it as well. Probably around 30% of the study will be on monotherapy. Around 50% of the study uh, would be an add-on to the existing LAMAs or LABAs. And uh, the last portion of the study will be uh, in combination with uh, inhaled uh, corticosteroids, which are used out there. So the phase three population itself has a relatively broad demographic in which it can fit. The other place where it can fit, the predominant therapy in COPD right now, and understandably so, is dual therapy of, of LAMAs plus LABAs and at times an add-on of, of inhaled corticosteroids. And the triple combination is a natural place ultimately to add this on as well. Now, the triple combination is not tested specifically in this phase three study. They have had some data that showed, showed an additive effect. Uh, but those particular studies were not powered for uh, to demonstrate the statistical significance of, of that incremental benefit. But when all said and done, there are plenty of, within the large landscape of COPD, the ability to introduce a new mechanism of action as a, as a monotherapy or an, as an add-on is extensive. Let's assume success in the uh, current phase three programs for COPD. Do you think that that success in these these phase three studies gives us uh, greater confidence in the sort of platform potential here? Because clearly, a lot of these incumbent technologies, you know, uh, LABAs, ICS, these are used in the treatment of of asthma. So we see the pipeline chart here. There's there's a, a busy pipeline chart of other respiratory diseases where you know. I'm assuming a success here in phase three begets the argument for a platform and begets them pursuing other indications. So maybe just sort of quickly summarize how you see the sort of platform upside here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one can argue that it is a a, a platform or a pipeline in one drug because uh, there, there are many reasons, and we've seen historical data in asthma here where, where it works, as well as cystic fibrosis. So definitely there's a scope to imagine uh, what can be beyond COPD uh, at one point. I guess, and, and this is just to kind of reference how uh, Rosalind thinks about the world, it's all contingent on valuation, what is priced in. <laughs> At this point in time, very little is priced in because the downside to upside is extraordinary based on, on, on where the outcome is. And COPD is a sizable market opportunity to say the least. And not just that, uh, there are about probably 5,000 physicians out there in the US that uh, write 70% of prescriptions. So 
even actually a small company with about a hundred person sales force could target that end market opportunity. Um, is there a scope for uh, a label expansion uh, beyond COPD? No doubt. Um, but I would say that this would really kind of be the scope of uh, turning this company into uh, a well-integrated uh, respirology uh, kind of a franchise, which, you know, I can't say that, uh, I mean, I'm reluctant at this point in time to portray the blue sky scenario beyond the imminent uh, events and catalyst, because obviously they become almost irrelevant in the context of the opportunity at hand. But is there a scope for that? Absolutely. Let's transition now to a name that uh, has been very topical over the last week or so, Delcath Systems. The company recently released uh, additional focus data. And if we can kind of maybe try and just decouple ourselves from the market reaction to the data, I'm curious just to get your impression of what you know Delcath released a week ago. What was your interpretation, forgetting how the market reacted, forgetting whatever dynamics played into it, you know, difficult tape, misunderstanding. What was your interpretation? What was your assessment of the data we saw from Delcath? Right. Yeah, no, that's a, a, a great question. And if we talk specifically about the data, and obviously it comes to Delcath, you know, it's, it's a company that we have, have gotten uh, deeply involved with, and we're very proud of what it has achieved over the last year. And not just a, a difficult uh, tape environment for biotechs, but uh, operationally from a COVID standpoint. So, uh, Delcath released its phase three data as of December. And what the company wanted to highlight at the time was number one, which we knew from the past, but it actually exceeded it, that on the uh, defined endpoint, which was overall response rate, it succeeded and in fact, it has exceeded what was released uh, earlier in the year on that same endpoint. And that's uh, uh, overall response rate. The statistical analysis that was required to demonstrate success here ultimately needed to demonstrate that the what is called the statistical lower bound of the response rate uh, exceeded uh, what has been seen in the literature for uh, checkpoint inhibitors that are frequently used in this disease state and have a single digit response rate. So the company, uh, on that particular endpoint, the company more than exceeded uh, the needed uh, threshold. The threshold, by the way, was around 8.3%, and uh, the company on its lower bound threshold uh, had 22.5% on that. So you know, almost a triple where it needed to be. But to contextualize, and this is on what is called an ITT analysis or an tetra-treat analysis, where uh, over 10% of the patients are patients who never got uh, even one single administration of the therapy, we have seen response rates that are unparalleled and unprecedented in this very difficult-to-treat patient population, which is called ocular melanoma. Um, or metastatic ocular melanoma, a disease with dismal prognosis for which there is no currently FDA-approved standards of care. We are hopeful that we will start to see the landscape evolve over time. But the DELCAT system, uh, ultimately, for this disease state and frankly for many others down the road, will be a foundational therapy that can do what no other therapy can. So, so that's just on the primary end. What I would like to highlight for, for individuals is the median duration of response. Response is not sufficient, ultimately, to, to have a, a level of clinical meaningfulness. What we've seen, and this is the first time the company released it, was 14 months duration of response. So patients that respond on therapy, and just so I contextualize it, for something to be perceived by FDA as clinically meaningful, six months is usually the threshold. So obviously here we're dealing with a, a much longer duration. And by the way, more than half of the patients are still uh, being assessed uh, on therapy. So even that median duration response might mature. So far exceeding what is the normal kind of basic threshold that uh, FDA looks upon, 
And I would even highlight a recent uh, company that put out data, Immunogen, for their ovarian cancer drug. And I would kind of urge people to compare and contrast the data between the two companies. And there are certain similarities on response rates. And the difference is that uh, they reported a median duration of response of 5.8 months or so. And, and they say that it will continue to mature potentially up to seven, um, while Delcats is obviously more than double of that. So again, a company for which uh, you know the market reacted very well to, uh, to data for uh, a drug uh, in the context of a high unmet need. So the sort of a, there, there's pr- plenty of contextual examples to look at. Now, what the company was very important for it to do was to release some initial survival data. And that has a regulatory context because really FDA's historical concern were not whether the therapy is efficacious or not. It was in the context of the safety, historical safety profile of, their, of the first generation device. And importantly, the uninterpretability of the survival data that gave FDA concern that there might actually be a survival detriment. The study that the company has run was ultimately uh, what, what, and the results that were put out there were to try to kind of highlight to investors the fact that not only did the company succeed on the primary endpoint and ultimately the median duration of responses far exceeds a minimum regulatory bar that FDA has, the company wanted to give a glimpse of the, uh, of the, some of the survival data. So what do we see? What we see is number one media and the data is still maturing by the way. And there are reasons to believe that it could actually improve upon what we have seen today. If you look at patients that were treated on this therapy, we see a median survival for these patients of 20 and a half months. And now we're talking about patients across various lines of therapy. Some are first line, some are second line, third line, and beyond. So we have patients across the ocular melanoma landscape. 20 and a half months median survival is unprecedented in this patient population. If one reviews the literature, and even recent literature, on the high end, one might get something in the vicinity of, in the low teens, what we have seen, by the way, there's a relevant control arm within the study that we use for exploratory purposes, and it was part of the original randomized trial, um, and we see that that particular patient population had 14 months, which is consistent or even at the high end of what you would see in recent literature and historical literature. So I guess the, the point is, if you look at the, the, uh, the full data set, what you realize is uh, response rates that are unprecedented for this patient population, median duration of response that is unprecedented for this patient population, let alone impressive in the context of any oncology indication. And lastly, uh, survival data that is a, yet again unprecedented for this patient population, all addressing uh, historical concerns in relation to this therapy. No treatment-related deaths were reported in the study, unlike the prior uh, historical uh, trials, which had about 7% treatment-related deaths, uh, possibly, or toxic deaths, as they were defined. And and the safety profile, frankly, that is consistent with most uh, cancer uh, therapies out there, Uh, not benign, but definitely not too complex to manage. So the data from our perspective is incredibly exciting because we are looking to file shortly with FDA and you are talking about a disease state that for which there has been no real development uh, for the last um, uh, 40 or 50 years. So the ability to bring a therapy to market uh, in a disease state for which there is nothing available there uh, is incredibly exciting uh, for a company such as Delcath and and for an investor such as myself that helped the company over the last two years to get to the state, incredibly gratifying too. So you you bring up FDA and the previous uh, interaction Delcath had with them and the CRL they received and the fact that they highlighted safety as being their biggest concern. Now that we've seen these data we've ta- you've you've highlighted safety uh, as being something that's dramatically improved with this next gen system you know what level of confidence do you have with the you know the approvability let's call it of hepsado 
as it sort of enters maybe this next stage of the Dellcast story, which is going to increasingly become a regulatory story. Right. So FDA is, is a, a large bureaucratic organization that's incredibly thorough and, and thoughtful. In the end of the day, we are dealing here with a disease state that is one of a high unmet need. It's an ultra-orphan uh, cancer indication. Looking at our data, which again, and I'm being frank here, it's on the high end of our expectation um, overall, because we were not sure what we will see, especially around survival uh, outcomes here. And I think that the data is very strongly uh, supports the uh, overall clinical benefit of this uh, therapy um, to an extent that's never been observed before. Uh, I would say that the clinical data package is uh, as robust or not even more robust than uh, historical precedents of approval within these particular uh, cancer indications. Again, FDA's historical concerns were valid. The prior studies that were run by the company were not robust. The data, there were incredible, there was incredible amount of toxicity. There was lack of consistency even in the uh, manufacturing of the historical product. So I don't think that FDA did anything wrong. I think FDA highlighted genuine risks while taking, while being responsible and trying to ultimately bring an effective therapy for patients where there is a high unmet need. So uh, in the end, the FDA is not an antagonist organization. It's a regulatory body that's that's incredibly responsible. So uh, looking at our clinical data, looking at precedents of what is approved out there, I think that one can walk into FDA incredibly confident at this point in time and, and feeling comfortable that this is an approvable therapy. No, no doubt about it. One should never be nonchalant about... Um, you know, there, there are a lot of details when one files an NDA, but as to the clinical data point that has been produced, it's, it is unprecedented for this disease state and, and uh, makes all of us, and frankly, clinicians, uh, very, very excited. Maybe one last question as it pertains to the focus data and FDA. So, the best alternative care arm, which is a, a legacy piece of the study that, that exists from when it was a randomized controlled trial before being switched to a single arm study. Do you believe FDA will look at the comparisons for Hepsato versus BAC? Do you think that they put any weight in, in those data, even though the fact the study was transitioned from an RCT to a single arm study? Is there is the data that the company has shared from these exploratory analysis comparing Hepsato versus BAC, are these data that FDA will take serious consideration of? Let me put it this way. FDA, in the end of the day, wants to look at the totality of the data and gain comfort that the effect seen is, of, is clinically meaningful in the context of a risk of a therapy. This is a generic statement in relation to FDA. I do not believe for one second, and when there is data that's relevant data <laughs> that is put in front of a regulator, they will not uh, look at it and explore it. Now, it's more about claims. So when I say claims, obviously when you have a randomized control trial that was with a primary endpoint of survival, and you specifically hit on that endpoint, then there's comfort around claim and labeling and things such as that, or, or as to the probability that the outcome ultimately uh, is, is in, in no doubt or no dispute. But here's how I look at it at the end of the day, in the process of what one does. You look at the focus trial data and the various endpoints. You can compare it to, uh, FDA has multiple choices of how they can look at the data. They can compare it to historical and recent historical data and see whether they believe that it produced meaningful clinical outcome here. Secondly, there is a relevant control arm here that was actually randomized into the original study. Now, I can't see that they will not look at it because I think it's, it's a relevant comparison to try to uh, assess. What I can tell you is that what we see for that control group is consistent with the literature and maybe even somewhat higher than that. It's actually a unique control group. Uh, which you've never seen before. It's a control group that 
is predominantly on another liver-targeted therapy, which is called uh, TACE. So I think it's a relevant comparison, but it is fair to say that one should not necessarily come and, and claim, based on these trial designs, that there's unambiguous uh, demonstration of a survival benefit over TACE or anything such as that. But to ignore the data, I don't think it would be something that the FDA would do. I think that in a package, FDA wants to look at everything, including all historical publications. Recall, this is something that has been used for well over a thousand times in, in Europe and their peer-reviewed publications in relation to this technology. And what is striking at the end of the day is the consistency across studies, including in a well-run phase three trial. So there is incredible amount of data here uh, for one to gain comfort, and especially the consistency. If there were inconsistencies, I can assure you that any responsible drug reviewer will highlight them. <laughs> so what is really calming and, and, and what's kind of um, uh, and, and what is actually impressive here is the consistency across independent studies, whether in the EU and the US, and ultimately the focus trial here. I'm comfortable that it is something that weight will be given to, but again, it's more about the scope of claims that one might be able to put out there. You've highlighted exactly what I was sort of trying to to tease out, which is, you know, the, the, the BAC arm does provide a real comparator arm, and albeit the study has transitioned from a RCT to a single arm design, I think any responsible company would still look at that BAC data, share those BAC data, and obviously the regulator will be oh. interested in those BAC <laughs> data as it. So, you know, I'm just trying to put in context as to, to yeah, let, let, know, me, let me just kind of say one thing. I mean, the, the fact that there was a BAC arm there is well known and, and investors uh, have been well aware of that. Had we not put out a comparison against the BAC, which, by the way, is, is part of the predefined statistical plan of the study, uh, I am certain that the company would be blamed for potentially hiding relevant data. So I just think that the company has been incredibly transparent and uh, putting incremental, everybody's well aware of the design, the single arm design of the study, and everybody's well aware of the exploratory analyses that have been predefined. And I think that it was responsible to share with investors what we see on the survival outcome, which has been FDA's historical concern in the context of the historical toxicity of this therapy. So I think that the current management team is, is incredibly transparent in all aspects of the company that pertain to allow investors to make that risk-reward calculus. And I think it, it was more than appropriate to disclose that analysis because otherwise, uh, I would say it would open itself to interpretation that, if anything, we're trying to be less than transparent with investors. Right. So, so looking beyond the focus data, looking beyond FDA, let's look at the commercial landscape that Hepsado could address for the metastatic ocular melanoma patient for this market. How do you see the commercial dynamics for this technology? Yeah, no, and that is really the core question here. And I think that, you know, investors are, and rightly so, one foc it focuses on incremental risk, but there is a big picture here. And let me start by saying, this asset is any, a very unique asset. It's incredibly unique. And, and maybe Part of the challenges that investors have is uh, in trying to wrap their head around this is understanding it because of its uniqueness. And probably that will come about more as, it, as it's commercialized. But let's put that aside for a moment. The, the uniqueness is it's, a, it's, it's an interventional oncology product. It's, it's actually a medtech uh, product that's regulated as a drug. Otherwise, there's nothing very special about it. I mean, we see a lot of medtech uh, opportunities out there. But what I want to say is that what this platform can do is what no other liver-targeted therapy can do. And it's about not just directed treatment within the liver, it's actually treating the whole liver. And the ability to do that, to be honest, is 70 years in the making. <laughs> There's been a desire to be able to do just this 
for about 70 years since the beginning of what was called the intrahepatic perfusion surgery, ultimately evolving into this uh, technology, which allows you to treat the whole liver in a minimally invasive percutaneous way. So uh, this has been a long journey, but that has been challenging, but, but we're there now. As a consequence of that, and by the way, talking about the control arm, which we had predominantly around almost 80% of the patients were treated with a, an, an approved and, and an available liver-targeted therapy taste, for us internally as a company, it, it gives you that confidence that you have a, a highly differentiated clinical profile compared to anything that's out there on the market. So let's put aside the regulatory aspect of it just for the company and comparing what can Hebzato do that uh, other liver-targeted therapies cannot do, uh, this data gives that added confidence as to the differentiation of the technology. So ocular uh, melanoma, metastatic ocular melanoma, is what we call kind of a, a beachhead indication. It's ultra-orphan setting. It's a liver-dominant disease. When the disease metastasizes, it usually goes to the liver. And there are very few treatment options here. So there's a perfect initial fit, especially when it comes to a small company. We're looking to get it approved there. But as well, what I think is missed on and many people, and this is actually where we became incredibly enthusiastic, the second generation device is in, will be done mostly in an outpatient setting, which enables reimbursement consistent with other ultra-orphan uh, oncology drugs. So most likely this will be the most expensive and reimbursed interventional oncology asset out there. And because all you need is a relatively modest sales force to commercialize it, it just ocular melanoma itself, uh, you can build a company off that. But the scope of the technology is well beyond. And where we see this going is other similar indications in which what you have is, I mean, liver metastases are, are, are a challenge in, in, in cancer, but you have a subset of liver metastases that are diffuse, and they're called miliary diseases, where it's very difficult to use liver-targeted therapies. This technology can do it, and we see that in ocular melanoma, but then we see it in colorectal cancer, metastatic colorectal cancer. That's the predominant aspect of it is uh, miliary. And there's historical data on, on liver perfusion that is extraordinary data, as strong, if not stronger, in colorectal cancer that gives us the confidence that this technology can be used there. And ultimately, we see it as well in certain neuroendocrine tumors, metastatic or liver-dominant breast cancer, et cetera. So the scope is incredibly large to do something that, frankly, for about 70 years, uh, surgeons and physicians were hoping to do. We will start with ocular melanoma, but the upside here from that is really to be able now to offer all these other cancer patients a treatment approach that uh, one could not even have conceived of up until recently. So there's a stepwise logical approach here for market penetration and value creation over time. And lastly, as, as I said, it's, it's a very unique acid. It's an acid that cannot be easily, if at all, genericized. It's a drug device combination. You can't just go out there and run an abbreviated new drug application for it. It would be incredibly challenging to ultimately genericize it, if at all. So you can incrementally build value, but the net present value or the terminal value here is actually incredibly high. So the challenge is get it to market, start commercializing, produce more data and other indications, but you have an incredibly long runway here, ultimately, uh, if, if one thinks about it as an investor, from a cash flow and perpetual cash flows as you grow that business. So there's a team and a board <laughs> that's highly committed to bring this to market and to really maximize, one, the value, uh, the economic value, but frankly, hand, hand in hand, the clinical value to provide patients and physicians the opportunity the opportunity to do what has never been able, what nobody has ever been able to do to date in relation to liver metastases of cancer that are liver being a uh, life-limiting organ. So we, we believe we can have an incredible impact here on, on tens and tens of thousands of patients down the road. 
So Gil, you and I could probably talk for for uh, a lot longer on mm-hmm. on Delcath and on biotech in general. But I I do have one last question as it relates to Delcath, and then we'll we'll wrap things up. And it's it's probably you know one of the questions that you get the most, and I get the most, and the company gets the most, and it pertains to finance, and right. you know how the company will or plans to finance itself throughout 2022, which will obviously include a FDA interaction, a NDA submission to based on the previous CRL, uh, and pot- potentially some new studies in new indications outside of ocular melanoma. How should we as investors think about finance as it relates to, to Delcap? Yeah, so obviously when uh, the new CEO, Gerard, came in, he immediately did a financing to uh, which was actually higher than <laughs> where the stock trades right now with uh, a great set of institutional investors. Uh, that particular deal was uh, well oversubscribed, uh, I believe uh, well over two times oversubscribed at the time. There is a lot of sensitivity, both on the part of management and the board around dilution. and uh, But at the same time, there's incredible amount, I would argue, of sophistication in understanding capital markets, even the CEO himself, being an ex-CFO of some incredibly successful companies, really understands that one needs to be very cautious how one goes about financing companies to ensure that there's a long-term shareholder value creation. And God knows we know that in the sector, uh, we've seen companies uh, sometimes be blatantly have a blatant disregard so, you know, we are ultimately, uh, Delcath is not alone in, in this market. I mean, the stock obviously has not done over the last, you know, if you look at the Delcath chart, you will see that it actually correlated along with the XBI index. It peaked in February and subsequent to that, uh, it went down uh, along with the index in many ways. So the overall macro environment has not been conducive uh, for most companies, uh, to say the least. The last thing one wants to do is to go out there and just, you know, raise capital willy-nilly, uh, large amounts of it, even if offered uh, to the extent that you're hurting existing shareholders. So the only thing I can promise you is that there's a tremendous amount of thought. And, and fortunately, actually, there's tremendous amount of capital and and, and various capital structures and, and, and flexibility amongst investors out there uh, within the sector. I think that we will look to be as responsible as, as possible ultimately to ensure that all shareholders ultimately could enjoy the, the long-term creation that the company is focused on. Uh, we'll be cautious. The company has, I mean, I won't say a very strong balance sheet, but it has a, a, a good balance sheet and it has flexibility to make decisions as, as we go along. Fortunately, again, uh, we are talking about relatively imminent events as well. This is uh, we are talking about filing in the first half of the year. Uh, this is a fast review. It's a six-month review at FDA. So this is not a science project at this point in time. Uh, this is a company that, uh, uh, starting in 2023, could see meaningful revenues coming into. So needless to say that that's an incredibly attractive asset and, and gives tremendous amount of financial flexibility for companies to make decisions. Gil, thanks so much. I really appreciate you giving us your Big picture thoughts on the biotech space. I think that's highly relevant as we are, and I think all feeling a little overwhelmed by what has been a very difficult biotech tape. Verona introducing this to to us and to our audience, uh, obviously going to be a topical name in 2022 with uh, impending data and obviously Delcath, a name that you and I have uh, talked about a number of times and our audience is very familiar with. I think you providing an investor's perspective, someone who's put their capital to work here, I think it's been very, very helpful. So I really want to thank you for opening up and talking to us. Really appreciate that. Pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And anytime, Hogan. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Gil. All right. Take care. A few final comments after my interview with Gil Aheron of Rosalind Advisors. I personally found Gil's commentary on the macro biotech climate very reassuring and frankly 
almost calming. Uh, I think he puts it into uh, excellent historical context and gives us lots of reasons to feel optimistic that although we may have to weather a few more weeks of ugliness in 2021, there's reasons to be optimistic for 2022 and beyond. As it relates to the companies we discussed when it comes to Verona, Clearly, I think Verona is going to be one of a number of companies that fall into this category of being affordable, well-capitalized, with good uh, proof-of-concept data in big addressable markets with impending data releases coming out in 2022. These are the kind of names, I think, that in a normal biotech tape, you'd certainly see these, these kind of stocks run into data and you know, it has some similarities actually to what uh, Brian Finn uh, described with ProQR, although I guess orphan versus, you know, orphan market versus bigger markets with COPD, but similar situation again, like well-capitalized, good cap structure, you know, well-held, good proof of concept data and impending catalysts. So lots to like here. Certainly we'll watch Verona closely uh, as we draw closer to data, which I believe will be mid-2022. mid Delcath, obviously, Lots of history here. Uh, we're clearly supporters of the name, as are Rosalind. Um, I thought Gil provided us with some great context on on the data that we've seen from Focus thus far. I think we've heard, you know, from Delcast critics. We've heard from the company. We've heard from KOLs, and I think now with Gil's comments, we've heard from an investor and. You know, I think he's very reassuring as to the quality of the data. He's very reassuring as to the probability of success with FDA and also on the commercial opportunity, both for metastatic ocular melanoma and for the broader platform applicability. So certainly a name that we like and are going to be following closely. I really want to thank our audience for the support we've received for this podcast series. We only recently launched it and we've received incredible feedback, uh, a growing audience, and it's certainly something that we will endeavor to do with more frequency in uh, 2022. But I really want to say thank you to everyone for their support and interest in in Encode Ideas, both from our research perspective and also this new endeavor with the podcasts. I want to wish everyone a happy holidays, a wonderful new year. Let's hope for a calming of the XBI for the remainder of December and uh, a renewal of interest and enthusiasm in the space for 2022. Thank you, everyone, and look forward to speaking with you in the new year.